there was this sort of notion that in the 40s, if you walked down a street in Cleveland, you could have heard a continuous broadcast of the Indians game if it was on, because it would have been on so many different radios that it would have just been sort of in the air almost. And I also thought that it was interesting, the role that baseball played coming back from World War II, where some of these guys, they'd just gone through the Depression and the war, and they really sort of looked to baseball as not only um, something to find comfort in, but something to seek normalcy in. It sort of spoke to what America was. And I always thought that like this could be an interesting summer for baseball because we just had COVID. And now you've got this summer where we're, we're vaccinated, we're sort of out. Baseball could serve that similar function that it served after World War II as a way of sort of establishing normalcy or sign- just symbolizing normal normalcy, going to a ball game. It's in that position to do so once again. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closets by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould, joined this week by author and diehard Cardinal fan Luke Eplin, whose new book is Our Team, and it's a book about the four personalities that came to define the 48 Cleveland team that won the World Series, sort of their interlocking lives, how they laced together, um, you know, how some of them were rivals and how they built this team. Luke, it's it's a pleasure to have you on this podcast to talk about your book, to talk about the Cardinals, to talk about uh, just history. It's it's nice. I know the team's losing a lot, so this maybe comes as a departure for listeners, um, but I think we can tie it all together. It's great to be here, Derek. Thanks. Luke grew up, you grew up in uh, Litchfield, Illinois. As a yep. Cardinal fan, halfway between St. Louis and Springfield, about an hour outside of St. Louis. Take me through how you came to find this story and be attached to this story and, and really inspired by the story of the 48 Cleveland team. Yeah, it's not a natural fit for someone like me who grew up a diehard Cardinals fan. My father had tickets to the Cardinals game starting in the late 70s and then sort of lasting over the over the following decades. So I grew up going to plenty of games as, as a kid. How it started was that my grandpa, who is from a small town in Southern Illinois called Pinckneyville near Carbondale, during the war, he was 4F because of his hearing. And so instead of fighting, he went to St. Louis and worked at an airplane factory there. Um, some of his shifts got over in the afternoon, and he used to hop streetcars to Sportsman's Park to wow. see games afterwards. Um, and he was an unusual man in that he was not a fan of the St. Louis Cardinals. He was a fan of the St. Louis Browns, which is, of course, the other team, the other major league team that was in St. Louis um, until the mid-50s. Um, and so I grew up hearing about the St. Louis Browns and their history and perhaps had a deeper knowledge than a lot of Cardinals fans did about that. Uh, team. And so anybody who knows anything about the St. Louis Browns knows that the last owner of that team was a man named Bill Veck. And he did some of his most notorious stunts for the Browns. I mm-hmm. think uh, perhaps most notoriously, he brought a little person to the plate, Eddie Goodell. Um, but he would do other things. He would have sort of fans in the outfield bleachers manage the game. Um, you know, just sort of wild things to try to get St. Louis fans interested in the Browns. And so I really wanted to write about Bill Veck and try to 
publish a book on the Browns. Um, and it was during my research of Vec in preparation for doing a book on the Browns that I went back into some of the archives. Uh, I live in New York now. You can go to the New York Public Library and check out physical copies of the sporting news. The sporting news mm. was kind of the Bible of baseball back in the 40s and 50s. It, it was a publication that was all baseball. It has just incredibly uh, great stories and things like that. So I checked out the years 1946, 1947, 1948. Uh, this was whenever Vec had owned the Cleveland Indians, just to get background information on him for, for my own research. And as I was sort of flipping through those issues, I started seeing other names just repeat uh, repeat in, in, in the articles about Beck, about Bill Veck, Bob Feller, Larry Doby, Satchel Page. So you had Bill Veck and Bob Feller, two white individuals, Larry Doby and Satchel Page, two black individuals. And I started noticing how each of these players or executives kind of represented a different aspect of the integration drama that was happening at the time. And I was thinking to myself that if you put these four people sort of, uh, intention with each other, it's looking at the ways that they complemented or played off of each other, you can have a really interesting story of integration from the one that is generally told, which is usually about Jackie Robinson. This is sort of an alternate history of the integration that was happening that took place in Cleveland. I am fascinated early in the book how many times St. Louis comes up. Mm. Uh, you know, I did not know, for example, Feller really got his first kind of peek at the majors in an exhibition game against the Cardinals during an all-star break um, with three innings, you know, and then uh, Feller and Page had one of their, what, first showdowns, right? Was at Sportsman's Park, one of their duels um, during the barnstorming days. Yeah, their um, second showdown ever, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I just, I was struck by that, like how often St. Louis pops up, and, you know, if I wanted to, and some, and I do, um, I could cherry pick this notion of like, like, ba like St. Louis being at the crossroads of so many things because baseball with two teams here was so important. Um, I know Chicago really was like a, a, a nexus point for the Negro leagues. A lot of teams went through there, played through there, um, but coming to St. Louis partially because of the crowds, do you think, or because it was the furthest West outpost or the furthest South outpost of professional baseball? Um, did you get any sense as to how come St. Louis came up so often in, well, in some of these moments? Well, I, I think that there are two different things there based on the moments that you've chosen. We'll take the the one with Bob Feller and Satchel Page. So Bob Feller and Satchel Page were the, the best sort of white and black pitchers of their eras. And it was at a time, of course, whenever uh, there was the major leagues and the Negro leagues and, and there, was, there was sort of segregation practice between them. And so the only time that, that the sort of white players and black players would, would face each other was on what was known as the barnstorming trail. This was after the season was over. Players would sort of band together and sort of roam across the country playing baseball in different sort of cities and towns trying to make money before the offseason. And major league players would often face their counterparts in the Negro Leagues. Um, a lot of those games that happened between sort of major leaguers and Negro League players couldn't necessarily take place south of the Mason-Dixon line because there was mm -hmm. sort of um, there was questions about whether such games would, would, would happen, how sort of the black players would be treated, things like this. And so St. Louis being sort of the farthest, farthest sort of south there was often in fact, the farthest south that these teams played at. And so Bob Feller and, and Satchel Page 
um, played there several times during their barnstorming uh, tours. And it was a uh, uh, sort of a, a huge magnet draw for black fans, not only in St. Louis, but even just sort of scattered throughout the South would make the trip up to see uh, Satchel Paige face, you know, someone as great as Bob Feller and oftentimes beat him. Um, in terms of the other one, I think it's interesting. Bob Feller's Bob Feller's story is connected to St. Louis, as you mentioned. Bob Feller had perhaps, I think, the greatest origin story ever in Major League history. He was somebody who grew up on a farm in rural Iowa. His dad sensed this extraordinary ability in him from a young age, so he cleared off a part of his farmland, built Bob Feller a baseball diamond when he was only a sort of pre-adolescent. And so Bob Feller had a kind of original field of dreams that the, yeah. he was to sort of become better and better. Um, as he got better, his dad took him to see Major League uh, Major League pitching at its best. They went to the 1934 World Series. This was the Cardinals versus the Tigers. Um, and they saw the middle three games in St. Louis, driving from Iowa down to St. Louis. He saw Dizzy Dean pitch, among sort of others. And Feller, sort of sitting up there in the stands, says to himself, it, rather than thinking, oh my gosh, this is a, a level beyond what I have seen, he says to himself, well, heck, I could do that. And he tells his dad this, and his dad is kind of quietly agrees with him. And then two years later in 1936, all that age only 17, Feller makes his way to Cleveland to sort of, you know, try out with the team. The Indians want to just see what he can do. So the Cardinals are coming through town at an exhibition game. This is happening during the All-Star break in 1936. Uh, they're just kind of playing to raise funds. And so they're like, ah, let's just throw that 17-year-old kid out there and see what he does against the old Gas House gang. And so basically Feller's dream that he has in 1934 watching these, these Cardinals play and saying to himself, heck, I can do that. He's getting his shot to see if that is, in fact, true. And as you said, he not only dominates, he strikes out eight of nine batters. It is an overwhelming performance to the point where Dizzy Dean in the locker room afterwards is just shaking his head, being like, who in the heck was that? Uh, so, yeah, the, the Cardinals really kind of launch Feller into his major league career. I really like the, uh, the like the validation from Dizzy Dean that you describe coming a few years after you know the uh like uh like bob feller's in the audience you know in the crowd watching this world series watching dizzy dean then he gets the validation from dizzy dean and then a few years later he's on the circuit with dizzy dean right part of the barnstorming group um i, I like that you know i mean you can think of like kind of modern examples of that i think back to though not as celebrated as bob feller maybe but you have uh you have guys like uh, Jeff Francis once snuck into a postseason game, or I guess he didn't sneak in. He bought a ticket and came to a postseason game in St. Louis at the old Bush Stadium and was describing what that meant to him when he later was pitching, trying to contend with the Colorado Rockies and stuff. I, I like stories like that where you find out that the the, the player was in the crowd the time that uh, something happened or like just part of the fans. But it was clear that um, Feller was going there or his dad took him there, like you said, to kind of give him a barometer of what was expected. Um, yeah. And then off he goes. Um, you know, the, the the barnstorming time that you describe, and it's early in the book, I, I, I wanted not to get wrapped up in the romance of it because yeah. it does also feel like a gilded element of baseball, right? Like yeah. it was necessary because of the wages. Um, but most of all, it was also forced upon it by this – you know, gentlemen's agreement that forced segregation 
into baseball or kept segregation in baseball. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 we sort of look at it now when we think, oh, how wonderful would it have been to, to watch those games? You, you had yeah. sort of Bob Feller and Stan Musial teaming up on the same team or Bob Feller and Ralph Kiner, Phil Rizzuto, all these people. And then on the opposite side, you have Satchel Paige teaming up with Jackie Robinson and, and others and things like that. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it came to be because the, uh, of the reserve clause that kept major league salaries uh, low and gave the players little empowerment in terms of determining their own economic future. And of course it also came out to be because of, as you said, the gentleman's agreement that prohibited uh, players of black African descent from playing in the major leagues. And so you had, uh, you had these sort of, it, it, the sort of interracial games that happened were, on on one hand, kind of almost like uh, carnival-esque in, in some way where, it, where you're seeing sort of a forbidden element. But on the more positive end, you could say that it was a way for players like Satchel Paige to really show what he could do against major leaguers and to do it against uh, with sort of white fans and executives in the stands who probably never would have gone to a Negro Leagues game and maybe held certain stereotypes about black players that you know, they were perhaps more performers than than actual players or that they that they didn't have what it took to stand up to the rigors of Major League Baseball or whatever these the stereotype was at the time and see for themselves that Page not only competed against Feller, he often beat him and he mm-hmm. beat stacked lineups of, of players like Stan Musial and others. Um, so it was a way for them to sort of showcase what they had done. And so you saw later in in life, people like Buck O'Neill, uh, the great Kansas City Monarchs first baseman, would say that these exhibition games were really sort of the the, the thing that that allowed the color line to to to, to come down. It, they really opened people's eyes to the potential of players in the Negro Leagues. Where did you? And this is way inside kind of research and reporting and writing question, but I got to know where did you find the telegram about the Yankees sent back about Joe DiMaggio? and how his success against Satchel Paige was validation of their signing him. It was in a, um, it was in a piece by look magazine, I believe um, where they interviewed um, Joe DiMaggio had always been somebody who was very uh, uh, effusive in his praise for, for Satchel Paige. You can go back as early as his rookie season in 1936 and you'll see quotes from Joe DiMaggio where they asked him, who's the greatest pitcher you ever saw? This is whenever Joe DiMaggio was first starting to get attention on the Yankees. And he's like, well, it's got to be Satchel Paige. And he sort of repeats this throughout his life. And so I believe that a writer in the 50s uh, asked certain Yankees officials about, about that. And they said, well, it started whenever DiMaggio faced Paige in a game in San Francisco. This was before he ever uh, played on the Yankees. And I think he got a scratch single off of Paige, just like hit it, apparently hit it back to the pitcher and it was hit sharply enough that kind of ricocheted off Paige. And so he got a, just like a little hit like that. And they were like, oh, he's, he's ready. And so there was this sort of notion and, and certain Negro League players have said this, that, that um, these sort of matchups that certain young white players would do against Page on the barnstorming trail were a trial by fire. There was this idea that if these prospects could get a hit off of Satchel Page, then they were ready for the majors. Do you think that barnstorming era created um, 
this notion of America's pastime? Is that do you think that's what did it? The the traveling shows, the 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 fact that major league teams weren't or major league players, I should say, weren't rooted in one place, um, but had mm. these moments where I mean, like, look, we make a big deal about interleague play, but as we just talked about, the you know, during the all-star break, the Cardinals popped up to Cleveland for an interleague game, essentially. Um yeah. do you think that that barnstorming culture maybe created the notion of America's pastime or at least spread it wide? Yeah, I think that spread it wide would probably be the way the the more accurate phrase there, because uh, the national pastime is such a sort of romanticized sort of yeah. thing that I'm not exactly sure um, it, it sprung necessarily from that. But I mean, barnstorming um, at a time whenever the teams, these major league teams, were concentrated in sort of the Northeast and the Midwest, it it took these players to all the other corners of of the country to fans that never would have perhaps ever got a chance to see them. And um, it certainly made, made more players like Bob Feller. I didn't put this in the book, but Bob Feller himself had uh, when he was in Van Meter, he saved up enough money doing chores to go see Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig barnstorm through Des Moines when he was mm. maybe 10 or 11 or something like that. And he, the, he got Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig to sign a baseball that is now in the Bob Feller museum in Van Meter, that same baseball that he got signed. And wow. so you can sort of imagine young kids, uh, you know, listening on the radio or sort of reading highlights in the newspaper and then getting to see Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig come through their area and that sort of solidifying the idea that these people are real. I can do this. I'm going to, I'm going to try. So yeah, it certainly allowed uh, people on the West coast and other places like that to, 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 to dream bigger. The, the kind of the narrative through line of our team, the epic story of four men in the world series that changed baseball is the tales of these Four men, Larry Doby, Cleveland outfielder, Bill Vec, owner, Bob Feller, the pitcher, Satchel Page, the pitcher. Um, you take great care in really um, and, and do it with such grace, really, to tell us such depth about these players and their origins, um, you know, how they moved up through baseball, how they were introduced to baseball, what they wanted to get from baseball. Um, but you also describe how the war shaped all four of them um larry doby bob feller and vec off to serve and what that did um during the era of world war ii and then what they were like when they came back how do you think the the war informed who they became when they eventually joined forces with that cleveland team or in that cleveland team I think that, I mean, it's, it's instrumental in not only shaping these individuals' personality, but in how they eventually came together after World War II. So you almost have to take them individually because you have three different men who went to war who had three completely different experiences. Bob Feller, by the time the war started, uh, was uh, the sort of phenom of the country. Whenever he came up to Cleveland at age 17, in his very first start ever as a major league player, he tied the American League record in strikeouts. Five starts later, he tied the the major league record in strikeouts. I mean, he was so popular that his high school graduation was broadcast live on the radio from coast to coast. <laughs> yeah, the time, yeah it's, it's a crazy thing to think about. 
by the time he was 22, he had already a thousand strikeouts and a hundred wins. Wait, they didn't do that for your high school graduation? (laughs) No, it was, it was discussed, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, he, he was somebody who there was this idea that he was going to be the greatest major league pitcher ever. And it seemed plausible. So, but whenever Pearl Harbor happens, Feller immediately feels this urge to serve he's he's angry he wants to sort of do something about it so he becomes the first active player to voluntarily sign up for the military after pearl harbor he does it two days afterwards and he not only does that he is kind of put in a promotional capacity where he's just kind of playing baseball and raising funds and he wants to fight so he's put on a battleship and sees heavy heavy fighting. I mean, we're, he's lucky he, he made it through. He was in some of the more significant wars in the South or battles in the South Pacific. And, um, and he gains a sort of hard outer shell about him. He comes back sort of with the understanding that he's not going to be, he's not going to get those pitching records. He loses four years of his prime, but he also sort of knows that all the money he could have made during that time is gone. And so he comes back sort of wanting to hit the ground running and try to make up for lost time and to sort of think about himself more independently um, and make as much money as he can to recoup his losses from the war. Mm. So he comes back a much sort of, um, uh, much sort of tougher and uh, entrepreneurial minded man. Bill Veck, on the other hand, is somebody who grew up in Chicago. His dad was the president of the Chicago Cubs. He learns uh, baseball from a very early age, or at least how to run a team. He takes over the Milwaukee Brewers, which at that time was a minor league team, when he's only 27. And then he just goes to work doing all these things that we now know for Veck. He shoots off, you know, he, he gives away these, these amazing promotional sorts of things. He brings in bands, tightrope walkers, circus performers. He does quiz shows. He does all these sorts of things that we now almost take for granted at games. But back then were sort of considered wild and fanciful. Right, and he had he breakfast becomes, with the brewers at one point, right? Yeah. Coffees he, and donuts, yeah. He does morning games because so, uh, during the war, people are, are working shifts around the clock. And so he figures that people that have worked a night shift could unwind at a baseball game. So he starts certain Brewers games at 10 o'clock in the morning and they serve donuts and coffee and cereal. Um, but he also kind of voluntarily, voluntarily goes into the war and uh, refuses to be promotional. He, too, says he wants to fight, gets shipped off to an island and has a heavy, uh, heavy art- artillery sort of kick back onto his foot one time and just crushes it. He's in amputation wards, things like this. It seems like he's he's going to lose his leg. He's sort of fighting it, and so he spends two years basically with inactivity, uh, being in hospitals, recovering, things like that. And he grows very, very restless. And he really wants to get back into baseball. And so when he comes to Cleveland to try to buy the Indians, he is just ready to go all in, work 24-hour days, do whatever he can to get this Indians team to the heights. Now, Larry Doby, on the other hand, is a much different case. He is uh, he grew up in uh, South Carolina in Patterson, New Jersey. He was this tremendous high school star, so popular that his high school was doing ceremonies for him. I mean, he he could have chosen any sport he wanted to and in fact went to college on a basketball scholarship. 
Um, he goes to the war and he's not, because he was such a great high school athlete in New Jersey at an integrated high school, he is on the train going to the war. He's going from New Jersey to Chicago and he sees sort of white troops and black troops on the, on the train. And he's thinking, well, we're all going to the same place. We're all going to be together. But once he gets to the naval training space, the white troops and the black troops are immediately separated from each other. And Dobie talks about how that hurt him tremendously. It's he sort of feels like he's never seen segregation so baldly practiced until mm -hmm. that moment. And uh, it really affects who he is. He, he becomes sort of much more interior focused. He is an introvert anyway. Um, but it opened his eyes to the realities of, of some of these things so that by the time he gets to major league baseball, he, he's perhaps a little, uh, used to something like that, but he also hears about Jackie Robinson signing yeah. the Dodgers while in the, while in the service and kind of thinks to himself, well, maybe I should start playing baseball. So, um, so, he was yeah. in the Pacific Theater, right? Yeah, at the he, time. And he was, someone in, tells he was him. on a very small island and just listening to the radio. And the, the news flash came on that Jackie Robinson had been signed. And Dobie immediately thinks to himself, well, I can't go back to college now. He's like, I've got to figure out if, if maybe I could do it. It's kind of like a it, it's like a eureka moment for him. He's like, well, baseball should be my path now. I'm glad you brought that up because his path and a little side point that when he started playing pro baseball, he wanted to keep that amateur status, you know, and you need to detail this great in your book so that he could play basketball. And so he could go to college. And so he adopted the name Larry Walker um, yes. as a pro ball player. So the, the, the first great outfielder, Larry, well, I guess he was an infielder at the time. Larry Walker he was an infielder. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if the other Larry Walker knows about that. I don't know. I'll have the chance to tell him about it at some yeah. point in time, but yeah. Um, you know, the newly minted Hall of Famer Larry Walker, outfielder for the Rockies and the Cardinals, has talked often about how, you know, his growing up was hockey. And so the history of the game is something of, of baseball is something that he's learned um, along with kind of the fundamentals. He told this great story. And this is a quick side tale, I guess, about how he always wanted to be second or third in drills because the other young players who were drafted and going through this stuff, they knew the drills by name. And so he could watch them first because he had mm -hmm. never done them and mimic them. And, and that's how he got through some of the early days of the minor leagues was not being the first to do something, but watching them to, to know what to do, where to, where to throw yeah. the ball or where to run after those kind of things. And um, Larry Doby finds out about Jackie Robinson signing and he returns from the war and like you said has kind of a, a a baseball as a purpose or baseball as a route and yet his path to the majors is so different than the one orchestrated and scripted and agreed upon by branch ricky and jackie robinson though i mean it's that was over time and this was overnight right yeah it's 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 night and day their their experiences. Jackie Robinson was uh, the signing of him was announced in October of 1945, and so between then and when he actually debuts on the Dodgers, he goes through one spring training, an entire minor league season with the Montreal Royals, and then another spring training. So he has kind of 18 months to sort of transition and acclimate to an all white dugout, and also his teammates have that time to sort of wrap their minds around the idea of sort of integration and things like that. And um, 
Branch Rickey didn't think that like he could just throw Jackie Robinson into the major league fire, that that would be a disservice to him. Bill Veck had the opposite thought. Bill Veck thought that that it would put too much pressure on uh, a player from the Negro Leagues to have to be under that spotlight for so long, this anticipation of them sort of moving up. His idea was just, I'm going to sign them, and I think that they're good enough to play here, and I'm just going to put them right on the roster. So Larry Doby plays uh, one last game in July of 1947 for the Newark Eagles. He goes to the locker room, goes to the train station, takes an overnight train to Chicago, where he joins up for the Indians, and the very next day comes to bat for the Cleveland Indians. He, he travels literally overnight from the Negro to the major leagues. Do you think that pace by which Dobie was signed and promoted then accelerated other teams to do it? Like if they, if, if there wasn't this long period of preparation and everything like that, that it, that it maybe helped accelerate things for, well, for major league baseball and integration. It certainly seemed like it was going to, because then you had the St. Louis Browns bring Willard Brown and Hank Thompson yeah. Uh, immediately to their roster. But the difference between that is that um, Brown and Thompson did not necessarily accelerate or or succeed right away. Um, And they were not given time in the majors to really find their footing. They were released pretty quickly after they were signed. Um, Larry Doby, too, in 1947, uh, really struggled for the final three months of the season. Uh, he was sort of so shell-shocked by the signing and the overnight journey that he told a sports writer afterwards that his teeth chattered his first 10 times he went to the plate for the Indians. He got only five hits during that Mm. uh, time that he was up there in 1947. He really looked like a bust. Not only a bust, but his sort of uh, inability to, to thrive kind of confirmed what a lot of white stereotypes had was that these players were not ready for the major leagues, that there was this huge difference between the major leagues and the Negro leagues, and that Jackie Robinson was sort of a singular figure. He was an exceptional figure. He was, you know, kind of on his own, but that doesn't mean that there were other players that were ready to come in behind him. I think what Dobie did that was different was that in 1948, the following season, he comes out of nowhere and has this tremendous season. He's not even supposed to make the team. In spring mm-hmm. training, he's the last person on the roster. They they really think they have to send him to the minors for seasoning, but he has such an incredible spring training. And then he kind of fumbles his way around in 1948, learns how to play the outfield, learns how to sort of deal with major league pitching and the segregation that comes along with being a major leaguer. A lot of the times he couldn't stay in the same hotels as his teammates. He's often alone, lonely. He's the only black player on the team until Satchel Page joins. But he thrives. He, he sort of adapts. He learns. He sort of uh, makes tremendous progress to the point where if Dobie had not been signed by the Indians, they simply would not have made the World Series in 1948. And that, more than anything else, was what really drove other owners to start looking for black players as well. Because they no longer saw sort of Jackie Robinson as an exceptional figure. They saw instead that you could sign somebody for the Negro Leagues. He might not be quite ready or he might have a transition period. But look at the rewards that could happen. The Indians went from a fourth place team in 1947 to a championship contender. And Dobie was such a tremendous part of that. And if you take Dobie out of that equation, the Indians probably are a third or a fourth place team in 1948. So um, they saw what what could happen and and that 
the talent was there if you had the patience and the time to nurture it. Dobie becomes a seven-time All-Star and a Hall of Famer, and you know I think is has rightfully been more celebrated with each passing year as the player that integrated the American League. Um, was he a sensation in that year? Then did did Cleveland become? I mean, they were they were definitely like a local event and became that as they as they contended and played well. And Lou Boudreau had a tremendous season as a player manager. Um, they had Joe Gordon, who for too long was overlooked as one of the best and really first, well, not first, but I mean, one of the best second basemen and and a hitter beyond that position um, there at that age. Um, so they had a good players within that constellation of good players. Was Dobie a sensation? Yeah, well, it's kind of Dobie's fate to always be overshadowed by someone else. And so... Uh, Dobie, of course, as the second player, black player in the major leagues, was off, has been and continues to be overshadowed by Jackie Robinson. But in 1948, he was then overshadowed by Satchel Paige. Um, mm. He had a kind of a, an off and on first half of the season where he would do something tremendous, like hit this home run that, that, that goes farther than anyone, even perhaps Babe Ruth hit. And then he would strike out five times in the next game. He was kind of up and down, up and down. Um, and then the Indians signed Satchel Paige uh, in early July because, well, partly because Bob Feller is having such a tough season. He's under 500 by the All-Star break. He's not looking like the real Feller. He's tired. He's injured. Um, they need pitching help. So they signed Paige. And then Paige becomes this nationwide sensation wherever page is going and he's pitching he's setting attendance records he goes they they play a game in chicago in august at comiskey park where the fans are so eager to get into him they literally rip the turnstiles out uh comiskey park held about fifty thousand people this estimated that over seventy thousand were in there they were literally underneath the bleachers trying to to catch any sort of glimpse of page and so while dobie has this tremendous surge later on in the 1948 season in the second half that bumps his average above 300 and really kind of solidifies his place as the catalyst to what gets the indians into the into the playoffs, he's overshadowed by Page because Page is such great copy. He's such uh, he has this sort of tremendous run there in August of 1948, where he is shutting people out and winning games, and just looks like he's the sensation. And so, um, yeah, I think that uh, because Dobie was not as good with the media and was not sort of as uh, vocal or even charismatic as as Page or Robinson, um, he gets overlooked. Satchel Page goes, I believe, six and one for that forty-eight team, and you do such a good job within the book about capturing the legend of Feller and the legend of Page, and really, you know, putting that up in lights with just superb writing, but also giving it like the moorings behind it, um, behind both of them, and and sort of somewhere where uh, you know you're not just printing the legend to borrow an old phrase. You, you you give us kind of the the um, the lattice work that created that legend, but also was the truth behind it, and it really is the contrast of those two. As you said, Feller was maybe one of the most well known. I mean, he was a celebrity, um, partially yeah. because he captured the national conscious during a time of depression as a guy coming out of Iowa who hoisted himself, you know, with the help of his father to greatness to and 
to speed. I mean, he threw with speed and, you know, he was, um, you know, dogged in his pursuit of being better. And then Satchel Paige captured another, you know, part of kind of the national idea, right? Like, you know, that, um, you know, that, like that he could compete, uh, you know, with the white players that he could play beyond the league that he was and that it was far overdue for major league teams to look at the talent in the Negro leagues. And so he was a celebrity um, in that way and was covered, um, you know, by, by newspapers all over. Um, And I really liked how you kind of intertwine those with page coming to Cleveland. And this is before he became a St. Louis Brown. Um, He was with Cleveland. Um, Was that, the third time Vec had tried to sign him and, and hadn't Vec before, or maybe even more than three times, hadn't Vec kind of eyed Satchel Page as possibly the player to, to be the first to integrate? Yeah. So Bill Vec, uh, as I said, grew up in Chicago and he, um, Chicago at that time was considered kind of a nerve center of the Negro leagues. It's where the East West all-star game took place and um, so he grew up sort of seeing a lot of Negro Leagues games there. And there was one writer from a black newspaper in Cleveland called The Call and Post who interviewed Vec early in his tenure with the Indians. And he was amazed not only that Bill Vec could name names of certain players, but he could tell you what positions they played. He could tell you sort of some some basic stats. He was somebody who who, who was aware not only of, of who these people were, but of their potential. And as he saw in Satchel Page, he knew immediately that not only was this guy uh, somebody who could easily win 20 games in the majors, but he had that sort of theatrical nature about him that could sort of draw a crowd, even so that they could just see Satchel Page walk to the mound. Like that mm. itself was almost like uh, a spectacle. And and Page was quite aware of this and, and often sort of played up that persona to excite crowds. Um, so when Vex saw Page play in the, uh, when he was only 20 uh, in a game in Los Angeles where Page and Dizzy Dean were facing off, and apparently they went not only the distance but the extra inning distance with Page winning one to nothing in 13 innings, apparently striking out 17. Um, and so the sort of seed was planted in Vex's mind that there has to be a way I can get this guy onto my team. In 1942, Bill Vec, as the owner of the, the Milwaukee Brewers, was looking to move up. The Philadelphia Phillies, a really poor team at that time, had come onto the market. Uh, a lot of players were already being lost to the war. Vec has this idea that he's going to buy the Phillies and to make them independent contenders, he was going to look for talent where other people weren't, and that would be in the Negro Leagues. So he had this idea that he was going to buy the Phillies, stock them with with uh, people like Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, and Monty Irving, and then they were going to try to make a run at the pennant with that. So the story goes, the commissioner of baseball caught on and steered the club away from Vec as a sort of way of not allowing integration to happen. Mm. So that was Vec's really sort of first attempt to, to sign Page. And then in 46 and 47, his first years of owning the Indians, he flirts with it. Uh, Page sends him a telegram at one point asking if, if it's time for him to, to be on the Indians. And Vec is like, just keep patient. And uh, he doesn't want he doesn't want integration. Bill Vec does not want integration to seem like a stunt or a promotion. He was quite sincere 
in integrating the Indians. He was doing it as almost a way of playing 1940s Moneyball because free agency was quite limited and uh, there's only so much you can do on the trade market. So he figures that the, the greatest sort of place where people aren't looking is in the Negro Leagues. But he thinks that if he signed Satchel Paige in the mid-40s, when Paige himself was approaching 40, people would assume, oh, this is just like you firing off fireworks or giving out crazy promotions. This is a stunt. Mm. And he did not want it to be cynical. So he chooses Larry Doby, who is 23 years old, much younger, has tremendous potential, and is not somebody that you could say is a stunt. This is somebody who looks like, if he pans out, can really help the Indians. Um, and so he needs to pick the right time to bring Satchel Page into the league. And even then, newspapers accused him of doing it just to draw crowds. And Vec was just flabbergasted by that. He's like, we're drawing more. The Indians set the attendance record in 1948. They didn't need Satchel Page to draw crowds. They needed Satchel Page to pitch. And that's what he did. Were they so, was it sort of like the, I guess, uh, the, the opposite of jumping the shark were they so popular because they won and so that could scale back the the circus and the spectacle did they just become such a popular team locally and and were they did they become popular nationally just because of how good they were yeah so it's it's two different sorts of questions um In 1946, whenever Bill Vec buys the team, he buys it in June. And by then, the Indians are already so far behind the Boston Red Sox that there's really no chance of them catching them. And so Bill Vec decides, you know what, I'm going to pull out every trick in the book. He signs clowns to be coaches. He signs a contortionist to the Indians roster who like does headstands while taking batting practice, who kind of drives around in a Jeep in the outfield shagging fungos. Um... You know, he's doing all of these crazy stunts just to sort of excite the fans and do all these things. But Vec had a belief that you couldn't do that forever, that sort of this idea of like bread and circuses can work for maybe a season or two seasons. But if the team doesn't improve, the fans are going to sour and be like, you know what, he's just manipulating us. He's just giving us clowns and we're not getting good baseball. And so his sort of idea was that he was going to do this for the beginning of the year, really make a lot of moves in 47, which is when he signs Doby, gets Joe Gordon and others. And then by 1948, when the Indians have by now a solid team in place, he reduces the stunts to a minimum. You no longer have clowns in the coaching box. You don't have the contortionist. It's it's like now they're going for it. So yeah, it was a way to sort of like awaken the fan base of the Indians. By the time they get to 1948, the Indians are a national sensation. Like they are being talked across the league. They're getting massive write-ups in all the biggest magazines and newspapers. What Bill Vec is doing is considered sort of miraculous. I mean, taking a, a team that was close to last in 1948 and molding them into a championship contender um, by 1940, two years later, is sensational. How you weave and tell and ultimately unite these four men and the threads of their story to that 48 season and the world series. I, I just, I cannot compliment it enough. I, I was honest with you. I got an, another hundred pages to read in the book and yeah. I'm looking forward to how that, you know, just the propulsion of them coming together, um, both with their personalities, their skills, their, you know, just who they were as professionals. Um, and as I was 
kind of preparing to talk to you, something stood out to me um, that I don't, I don't think, I, I think I always kind of knew, but didn't really recognize. And that Larry Doby, Bob Feller and Satchel Paige, they each won one world series in yeah. their careers. And that was that 48 series. What was the fallout from that? Why, why did that not become something that, that carried and the Cleveland team that comes to St. Louis this week for interleague play is still looking for its first World Series champion since then. Yeah, I, I go into this a lot in the epilogue. Um, in 1949, it was... Well, kind of, spoiler. Sorry. Oh, sorry, yeah. No. No. <laughs> 1949 is just kind of a big hangover for the Indians. Um, it just seems like every single thing that could go right in 1948 does. Hank Greenberg... I don't have this line in the book, but Hank Greenberg said that everything was going so right in 1948 that Bill Veck, who was a man who was losing his hair, used to sort of twist his fingers through his hair and the strands would come out on his desk and he'd pick them up and be like, oh, it's coming back. It's coming back. Like that was a sort of optimism that was in 1948. It just seemed like everything that, that he did turned out right. And in 1949, it was kind of the opposite. They become so popular that Hollywood comes knocking and wants to do a movie on the Indians. And they do it. And it's called The Kid from Cleveland. They mm -hmm. film it mainly in April and May of 1949. And they have to do it during the day while they're supposed to play at night. It becomes this tremendous distraction to the Indians, having to shoot a Hollywood movie while playing baseball. Um, Boudreaux and Vec would later blame that for the team's very slow start to 1949. Um, and you can watch The Kid from Cleveland. It's on YouTube. It's a really terrible movie. But it uh, it, it showcases all the Indians, including uh, Page and, and Dobie, in their prime. So that's kind of an interesting little document. But uh, everybody just kind of falls off. Boudreaux's batting average plummets by 50 points. Satchel Page said he was going to win 20 games, but he gets injured and only wins four. Um, it just seems like there is a kind of a, a hangover that happens. And Vec himself is distracted. His wife is on the verge of divorcing him. He uh, kind of has run himself ragged. He's been in and out of surgeries. Um, everything that could go wrong kind of does that season. And they're an old team. And so, um, yeah, everybody is kind of north of 30. So it was just one, you know, the original book title was The First Fine Careless Rapture. And that's what Bill Veck would always say about that team. Uh, he was asked in the 70s when the Indians were really down on their luck, why he didn't try to buy the Indians and recreate what he did in the 40s. And he would always say to the person, you can never recapture the first fine careless rapture. And mm. that first fine careless rapture was that for all of them. Not only does Feller, Veck, and Page never win another World Series, neither does Veck. And so it really is the the top of the mountain for them. Wow. We, what a contrast, too, to have Hollywood descend on Cleveland to do a story about the baseball team celebrating it versus yeah. what we grew up with, Major which League. was Hollywood <laughs> descending on Cleveland in Milwaukee, of all places, I guess, as a stand-in for Cleveland um, to basically mock the franchise um, and, uh, you know, and, and – 
<laughs> uh, and make a classic, right? Yeah, like I never that's thought the about that, but that would be a really good article. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, just like just the contrast there, and and sort of what that says about the franchise, but also maybe about what we were, what we seek from baseball. What what was your first moment then with baseball? What what uh, what was your moment that captured that you haven't been able to recreate? Well, um, my earliest memories are of sitting in the stands and just waiting with great anticipation at the old Bush Stadium with the uh, uh, the AstroTurfer, <laughs> waiting with great anticipation for the Cardinals team to run out of the dugout because I knew that Ozzie Smith was going to do the flip. And this was whenever he was still doing it uh, for most games there. And, uh, I mean, seeing Ozzie Smith doing a black backflip was just pure joy. Um he was my favorite player, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was great to have someone like that to, to latch on to, because then whenever I became a teenager in the 90s, there wasn't a lot of joy in, in, in the Cardinals at certain years. <laughs> right in the 90s, yeah. Is, is it back now, or, or is this a bad time to ask? I, I, it's... Yeah, this, this team is a little frustrating, uh, particularly now, but... I mean, we, the one thing I learned researching the Cleveland Indians is that I had to put myself into a very different mindset um, mm. because I grew up, I, I always thought that Cleveland and St. Louis were pretty similar cities. I got to live in Cleveland while I was researching this. And so I saw a lot of sort of overlaps between the way that the, the histories of these cities sort of went throughout the 20th century. But the fan bases of the Cardinals and Indians are so different where you had almost a St. Louis team that when they make it to the playoffs has that sort of Cardinals devil's magic that like whenever they do end up beating the Phillies in 06 or the Dodgers all those years uh, after that, it's almost kind of like, well, yeah, that's what we do. We punch above our weight in the, in the playoffs. Whereas like the Indians, there's, even in the 40s and 30s, you have sort of people saying, if the Indians are in first place, you know it's spring because it doesn't last. The Indians never make it to first place through summer. There is this sort of um, the Indians fans in 1948 used to boo the Indians mercilessly to the point where Bob Feller said that season, I wish that we could play more on the road because they treat us better. And the Indians fans aren't booing because the Indians were doing bad. They're booing because they they know that no matter what sort of is happening that that seems to be working at the beginning of the season, this team is going to rip our heart out by the end. And that is the sort of fan base thing. It's more of a sort of fatalistic fan base. Is that a, is that a sliding doors thing? Like just that fate or happenstance happened to put the Gas House gang in St. Louis or happened to put Branch Rickey in St. Louis with the and the idea to put together the farm system that would then, um, you know, create and nourish the Swifties of the forties and the timing of Stan Musial being there, um, at a time when the war was also going on. I mean, is, is that just, is there an alternate timeline where Cleveland is the Cardinals then? Have you given thought to like, whether or not that's, that's, that's just a fluke or a, a thing of timing, or if it's, the as ricky would say the residue of design yeah i mean i i or a cultural thing maybe it that, could it could be i mean there there's certainly sort of a great whenever bob feller came to the cleveland claim to cleveland there was great hope that that was going to start a dynasty and it just never seemed to they're like 
they almost made it in 1940. Uh, mm-hmm. But then just, it seemed like, it just seemed like the most heartbreaking things would happen that would derail them where the Cardinals, I mean, you can look at 1964 or these other sorts of years, I guess 2011 would be another good example where they just, they seem to sort of have the luck turn in their favor. I think the ultimate sliding door scenario in St. Louis involves another Bill Vick, uh situation where if you read Vec is in wreck, which is Bill mm-hmm. Vick's first autobiography and a fantastic book, just really rollicking read. He talks about when he took over the Browns, the, the Browns and the Cardinals were still playing in Sportsman's Park at that time. They shared the stadium. And his idea was that he was going to drive the Cardinals out of St. Louis. They sort of realized that this town was not big enough for two major league franchises. And that was increasingly obvious. And so he took down all of the Cardinal stuff at the stadium and put up all the Browns things. He was going to kind of make it inhospitable for the Cardinals to be there. And the Cardinals had that owner at the time, whose name is now escaping me, but who sort of was sort of uh, in trouble with sort of his taxes and things mm-hmm. like that. So it really looked like it was a possibility that the Browns could have stayed in St. Louis and the Cardinals could have left. But then Vex says whenever the Bush family from Anheuser-Busch bought the team, he was like, well, that's it, game over. He's like, I can't compete with their their money. So my sort of sliding door scenario is what if like that person didn't have the tax problems and was able to hold on to the Cardinals and Vec could chase the Cardinals out of St. Louis. Is, is Sam Breeden is who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, Sam Breeden, right. Yeah. Yep. Uh that's that's an interesting. Uh, yeah. That 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 whole history there and how they played each other um in St. Louis which until this past year was was still was the last World Series played all in one city. Right. Um, yeah. You know, or I guess I guess you had the one New York, um, but one stadium. Sorry, yeah, one, one stadium. stadium. Yeah. Yeah. All in one stadium. I misspoke there. Did did so? How is your fandom for the Cardinals now? And and how did working on this book did it change your view of baseball? Did did it heighten your interest in it? Did it? How did it change? I mean, you work so closely with something and and even though you, you were really digging and, and unearthing great stuff from the past, how did that, how does that shape how you view your favorite team in the present? I, I mean, I think it reconnected me with, with baseball. It was, I think working on this book, one of the more interesting things that, that you saw was just how central baseball was to the culture, which is something that I knew sort of intuitively from having read history books, but didn't quite sense until I really started on this this book. Um, there was this sort of notion that in the 40s, if you walked down a street in Cleveland, you could have heard a continuous broadcast of the Indians game if it was on, because it mm. would have been on so many different radios that it would have just been sort of in the air almost. And I also thought that it was interesting the role that baseball played coming back from World War II, where some of these guys had seen such terrible sorts of things and they'd just gone through the depression and the war. And they really sort of looked to baseball as not only um, something to find comfort in, but something to seek normalcy in. It sort of spoke to what America was. And this was not only for white fans, but also for black fans. The Negro Leagues never had a better season than in 1946. It was just sort of across the country. This was what fans were we're flocking to. Um, and it's, you know, at a time whenever baseball is, is, is waned in popularity a little bit in comparison, um, it reconnected me to its, its roots. And I always thought that like, this could be an interesting summer for baseball because we just had COVID 
and we'd just been sort of locked in our houses and things like that. And now you've got this summer where we're we're vaccinated, we're sort of out, we're out in these outdoor spaces. Baseball could serve that similar function that it served after World War II as a way of sort of establishing normalcy or sign- just symbolizing normal normalcy, going to a ball game. Um, it's in that position to do so once again. Do you think it is? Mm, <laughs> I thought it was going to, but... Uh, I don't know. It seems like we're just arguing so much about whether pitchers uh, have substances on their hands or whether games are too long or things like that, that I just, I, I don't know. Um, it, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't seem like it, it is, I guess. Yeah. I'm, I'm worried because there is, there's always been an, a level and you described it well with the Cleveland description there that there's always been a level of negativity to baseball because failure is such a part of it and heartbreak is such a part of it. And, you know, that used to be somewhat what bound you to a team, right. Right. Was that you shared this, this failure, right. You know, and you got up tomorrow and tried again. And that was part of, my my fondness my deep fondness for baseball um is very much connected to my deep fondness for newspapers where you mm. try to do it today and hit a home run with what you write and it's forgotten tomorrow if you mess up and right. i you know and I, but I, I i i asked the commissioner this once i said what does it say when the commissioner of baseball in spring when hope is eternal and no team has lost a game yet is only talking about what's wrong with the game. Yeah. You know, what tone does that set? And there's so much of the, and we're part of it too. We're the media. I mean, we, we ask about what's wrong a lot, you know, why are these injuries happen? I mean, we do fixate on it. And I, and I worry that there is this negativity that has enveloped how we're supposed to talk about the game. Um, because we do fixate on all that it's not and not enough on all that it has been, not just this year and what it could be, like you say, but what it was last year to get through that, to play a 60 game schedule, to set a template that other professional leagues then later followed the next year to try to get their seasons off the ground. You know, baseball showed what was possible. You know, I mean, I traveled around last year and so did teams and, they in a way showed that there could be an avenue back to normalcy and then saw others put their flag in it and take credit for it. Um, and all of this comes on the precipice of a possible work stoppage. And I, this is a long soliloquy to say that it worries me that the tone in which we describe baseball and talk about baseball, as you just said, um, you know, arrives at this point where there might be a work stoppage and it might do more harm to the game than good. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the two things I was thinking about there was that, um, yeah, you do you do hear sort of whenever we talk about baseball, the conversation generally veers toward what can we do to fix baseball? And that's not a good position to be in. But whenever you were talking about sort of failure being a routine part of um, of the baseball experience, just because of the way that the game is and the sort of heartbreak that uh, often accompanies seasons for fan bases, it sort of made me think about um, something else that is that was 
uh, sort of uh, that came up along with my research. And that is like the comic strip Peanuts, where Mm -hmm. you have a lot of the, the baseball strips in Peanuts are about just rank failure. I mean, not only failure, sort of failure that happens whenever you throw a pitch and it gets batted back to you so hard that your clothes fly off. <laughs> um, like that is the sort of failure that is evident in peanuts. And it's it's deeply connected to baseball. And the reason why I think that, that these strips are not only so funny, but so touching and true is is that uh, they, they expose the sort of... Uh, you know, uh, not cruelty of the game, but the sort of the sort of uh, toughness of the game. The, the, this this is a game that will break your heart and send your clothes flying. And uh, the Charlie Brown is 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 a character that just sort of comes back again and again and again, even though his team routinely gets beat by scores of you know eighty to nothing or something like that. But it's it's the sort of endurance and perseverance through that that we admire and. Um, that that we can find admirable in a lot of uh certain things i mean even whenever cleveland was having those really terrible seasons there is sort of an admirable nature of the way that uh the indians persisted through that um and then had such a resurgence in the 90s so yeah i've always i mean i i look to peanuts through for a lot of life but i think that uh you can reconnect to baseball through peanuts and it'll really sort of teach you what the essence of the game is by looking back at those strips. Absolutely. And and all of that is captured in the classic Peanuts cartoon that says, you know, hey, the sun is going to come up tomorrow. And Charlie Brown looks out and the sun is a baseball. And <laughs> yeah. the baseball will come up tomorrow. Baseball will be there tomorrow. That's a great way. That's a great way to look at it. That's a far more optimistic way. The baseball will be there tomorrow. Um, Luke, I think you did such a great job in this book um, of I, I enjoyed just being reintroduced to that period of time in baseball and the really you used a great word, the rollicking nature of barnstorming and mm-hmm. the big oversized characters and how they became those characters. Um, but I'm so glad that what your book provides is also a depth beyond that facade, um, you know, and and does an unflinching look at sort of the of the setup and why the barnstorming happened and while it was fun and entertaining and gave style and panache to baseball it also was reflective of the ills of baseball and maybe there's something to that now too baseball's fun there's bat flipping there's great young talent um and there are things to latch on to and legends to tell um but uh, but there's also parts that have to be fixed and parts that have to be improved. And I just I just want to tell you that, like, I just I really appreciate just the yarn that you've spun, um, but also the greater picture you've given because of that. It's just it's so well done, um, Luke. I, I really thanks I so mean much. That. Derek. that means a lot coming from you. The, the book is Our Team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball. It's by Luke Eplin. You can uh, find him on Twitter. His fondness for peanuts is very clear on uh, on on twitter um and i hope that what you just described about uh, peanuts and baseball is uh what you're working on for your next book <laughs> uh i'm i'm keeping my lips sealed for now but let's just say you're not you're not far off <laughs> <All right. laughs> 
Imagine your home totally organized. Closet by Design of St. Louis can help you get organized with 40% off plus an additional 15% off and free installation. Call 1-800-BY-DESIGN today. That's 1-800-BY-DESIGN. Closet by Design of St. Louis, the official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball. You can find the best podcast in baseball anywhere you get your podcast, including iTunes. I recently visited iTunes to see what the reviews were of the podcast, so I can always check there to see what I need to do better and how to do this better and how to uh, satisfy the community that has cropped up around BPIB. You can also find the Constant Cardinals coverage at stltoday.com and the pages of the Post-Dispatch. Luke, this has been a pleasure to to talk with you. Really um, has. we've, We've exchanged um conversations a bit on twitter can we call those conversations but we've exchanged notes on twitter yes um and i I knew about your work with this book so excited to see it um makes for a great father's day gift and is available anywhere you get your books but particularly at independent bookstores i have seen it all over at the independent bookstores i visit luke it's been great. great it was prominent at romans and pasadena it was prominent in cincinnati um, you know, and I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to going to Cleveland later this year with the Cardinals for that series. And I'll see it there. So, um, again, it's Our Team by Luke Epling. Our Team, the epic story of four men in the World Series that changed baseball. It's about the, the lives and careers and personalities and backgrounds of Larry Doby, Bill Beck, Bob Feller, Satchel Page, And Luke brings them all together for the great story of the 48 World Series championship Cleveland team. Luke, thank you so much for, for joining me. Thanks, Derek. It was a pleasure.